born in black family. <clears throat> Try that again. <clears throat> Morning, black family. Sadat here. Usually I play Professor Black Truth, but uh, the prepper's warning came on with a big uh, thumbnail talking about a nuke warning. So let's see what the fuck's going on now. Because no, our news don't tell us shit. Military strategists said that you have to watch out for things like false flagged events. These events are where a government stages an exercise, but during that exercise, something larger would take place. Right now, Vladimir Putin, the president to Russia, is staging the country's first nationwide exercise that simulates a nuclear attack from NATO or the United States of America. Russia is set to stage this first nationwide nuclear attack preparedness drill across 11 time zones for the first time in history. And they're doing this in preparation for a large-scale nuclear war. It's going to take place tomorrow, October 3rd, and it's going to see Vladimir Putin's administration, which the United States likes to call the regime, present as the West, uh, present the West as a nuclear aggressor. This exercise, which has only ever been done before region by region, includes the readiness drills and destruction of 70% of Russian housing, large amount of life support facilities like hospitals, and the infrastructure of the country becoming under uh, overwhelmed. It's going to assume in the scenario that martial law was introduced in Russia, and that it has gone through a full mobilization, which means a calling to arms of all the Russian people. This exercise is reading in the test results that some constituent entities or regions of the Russian Federation as a result of emergencies or other types of physical impact, complete destruction of life will take place and life support facilities and 70% of the housing will be completely raised. It envisions different types of accidents or hydraulic structures. It also looks at chemical and radiation hazardous regions. Civil servants that are being called up for this exercise and regional officials will be ordered to organize non-staff emergency rescue teams. They're going to endure food and medical supply issues, and they're going to need to don protective gear from radioactive uh, materials. The document warns that, quote, the risk of armed conflict escalates into local and regional wars, including those involving nuclear powers, and this risk is increasing. The threat to the safety of the population is posed by the risk of the use of a nuclear weapon by an enemy of modern long-range means that will be difficult to defeat, as well as a possible attack using unmanned aerial vehicles and watercraft. Now, the administration inside of Russia right now has taken a decision to develop new measures aimed at increasing the readiness of civil defense drills or civil defense forces, and those are meant to take measures that will protect the population they will look at cultural property on the territory of the Russian Federation, and they will use different means to evacuate the danger zones. The Russian president is known to have several bunkers in different palaces across the uh, Russian Federation in preparation for an Armageddon event, as well as a fleet of so-called doomsday aircraft. Now, this readiness drill or potential false flag event is being held just a couple of days before the Russian government celebrates the 71st birthday of its Western-called dictator or president, if you're inside of Russia. 
They're spending 40% of the state budget on the Army, the police, and intelligence gathering services, and they're engaging in a large-scale war against Ukraine and NATO. Details of this drill are coming out into the public as the head of one of the institutes there demanded the resumption of nuclear weapons testing in the Arctic for the first time since the end of the Soviet Union. They're calling for an equivalent, an equivalent jolt to Western leaders, like when the USSR tested the SAR bomb back in 1961. That was the most powerful ever with a capacity of more than 50 megatons. Now they say, I think this is the correct idea that we need to show the Western world what we are made of. This is the same situation now they warn, and it's not enough to conduct a nuclear test now. They have to get ready for the West to use them. They say everything will fall into place if this happens. The Russian defense minister traveled to a different region last week in a sign of a test resuming there. And we are seeing propaganda or rhetoric raised by loyalists to the Russian government saying that nuclear weapons must be back on the table. In a quote, they say, our strategic capability is our nuclear triad. This is what it is designed for. And this will take out the landmass of the United States of America. They say this nuclear weapons triad is uh, specifically for the USA. And they, speaking out as a uh, aggressor against the USA, know very well that after this happens, there will no longer be a United States of America. Russia's government says we 100% inflict an unacceptable defeat on the USA, and they know that. Now, if this next report that we are getting is legitimate, and it's not inflated by the Taiwan government, then China is about to lose its own ability to control itself, and it will lash out against America and Taiwan. What we're seeing is that Taiwan captured a Chinese boat and crew. They confiscated their boat after what they called terrorist activities were seen, and they refused to let the Taiwanese guards investigate the vessel. Moving back over to Russia, Medvedev, the former president there, has said that German factories on German soil are now legitimate targets for the Russian army as Germany gives tourist missiles to Ukraine. He called on Western politicians saying that they are idiots. He said, I think it's worth to keep track of these statements. On one hand, Medvedev is sometimes not taken as seriously as he should be. And on, other, on the other hand, you have to remember, he is a transmission of the Kremlin government. He will definitely use what power he has to inflict pain across the world. His new Telegram post says the number of idiots in charge of NATO countries is growing. One newly minted Cretan, he warns, the British defense minister, has decided to move British training courses for Ukrainian soldiers over to the territory of Ukraine itself. He says in that, the instructors are now legal targets for the Russian armed forces. And you have to realize, as he does, that they are ready to be ruthlessly destroyed. He says they are not mercenaries. They are no longer British soldiers. They are now specialists for the Ukrainian army, uh, army, and they are now targets for the Russian military. Now, the head of the Defense Committee of the Federal Republic of Germany, with a hard-to-pronounce surname, is demanding the immediate supply to Ukraine with Taurus missiles. This is so that the Ukrainian government can strike at the territory of Russia and weaken the supply of the Russian army. They say this is in accordance with international law, but they say in that case, the strikes on German factories where these missiles are made 
are also in compliance with international law. In all, he ends this warning. These idiots are actively pushing us toward World War III. Now, Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russian forces is barely moving at all. And what you see here is propaganda by the U.S. government and other NATO allies saying that they are able to stop Russia where it stands. But this isn't necessarily the case. You see, in war, we're back in a World War I, World War II era of fighting. They're in trenches, they're digging trenches, they're dropping mines, but they're also using technology. They're using different listening devices and they're using drones. Now questions are starting to emerge about whether Western military tactics that were designed to fight against insurgents in the Middle East are falling short of what we need now. They say the slow progress of Ukrainian troops is raising doubts about the U.S. government's commitment, also about the appropriateness of Western training. This development has profound implications for all NATO allies as they engage with larger armies like Russia and China. From the beginning, Ukraine's counteroffensive faced a very formidable opponent, Russian forces. They were well entrenched and armed to the teeth. They were employing a combination of Soviet-era fortifications as well as modern tactics. This includes the release of different minefields. Now, expecting Ukrainian troops to just adapt Western-style tactics after just a couple of weeks of training was a stretch at best. What they're doing now is reorienting military strategy that was used in World War I and World War II. Reports from Ukrainian soldiers who underwent training in Britain indicate that while Western instruction is solid for imparting basic soldiering skills, it's very ill-suited for Ukraine's unique battlefield challenge. Notably absent, they warned, was the guidance on dealing with obstacles such as trenches, uh, trenches minefields, and barbed wire, anti-tank ditches, dragon's teeth, these things are formidable defensive, uh, defensive maneuvers and tactics that Russia is employing. They have slowed down Ukraine's advance and they've made it so that initial attempts at employing NATO-style armored columns, including the German-made Leopard 2 tanks and the U.S.-made Bradley armored troop carriers, have been thwarted easily by the Russian military. Now, we have seen a jettisoning of these tactics in favor of a playbook that is more reminiscent of the Western Front in 1917. This strategy involves method, uh, method, methodical advances by small foot units. Now, you have to remember, if we do see some type of crisis take place in a NATO country, Article 5 is going to be employed. And so you're going to see all of NATO come against the aggressor. Now, we also take also have to take into consideration that we live in the United States of America. And here in this country, we have a very well-armed populace. And so if we do experience something that is of a larger conflict, that conflict will be engaged by the American people in one way or another. When we look at what has happened during civil unrest in places like the Middle East, and we look at what has happened in Syria with their civil war, we see that what starts as a small social conflict can quickly boil over into a large, long-duration event. Now, I want you to remember that during the Syrian civil war, the people who stayed safe were the people who banded together. And so we saw report after report from ground members there in the civil war that they would hold an entire apartment complex. They would have an armed guard of civilians at the bottom of the complex, and then everybody could bring their family to the complex itself. Now, you have to remember, when you get into a situation like that where you're relying on somebody else to protect you, that's great when it works, and it really sucks when it doesn't. 
You also have to consider all of the other parts of infrastructure that can be blown out and will be used against you in a conflict. What happens when your water no longer works? Well, definitely in an apartment complex, you have things like the back of your toilet, you have your water heater, but what you are missing is the ability to easily travel and pick up new water. So that's why it's important for you and your family to start thinking about where your local watering sources are. You need to consider how you're going to get to them. And you need to remember that it was just over 100 years ago, which is really nothing. Some of you might even have family members that are near that 100-year mark. So just a couple of generations ago, we as humans were still employing the use of water people. Those water people would be the ones who would take large wooden casks, and I'm talking about the size of uh, you know trailers now, basically half of a U-Haul or a small U-Haul, and these wooden casks would be filled up with water and they would take them by buggy, by horse and carriage, down to the different areas and different houses and they would drop off or deliver water. Another way they would do this is basically the bucket system, the Chinese bucket system, where you have a long pole and you have two water buckets, like five gallon buckets on each side. Now, how many members of our society right now are prepared to walk a mile to get water, load them up with 10 gallons of water, and then walk a mile back to the house? this while enduring a longer duration emergency. Not many, and that's why you have to think about your own preparedness. Where are your closest water sources and how are you going to make those water sources safe to drink? We always advocate the Sawyer Mini here because it's $20 and you can literally filter 100,000 gallons of water with it. You can buy it on Amazon, you can go to Walmart and get it. I have no affiliation with Sawyer right now, but it's smart for you to have. The only thing I'm going to warn you about is once you get it wet and that sponge inside starts to soak up some of that water, if you let it freeze, your filter is done. So it can either filter you 100,000 gallons if you take care of it, or it can filter you one gallon. If you do use it in freezing conditions, make sure that you sleep with it like it's your baby. Put it next to your body, put it in your creases, do whatever you have to do to be ready. Thank you guys for being here with us today and every day. Please share this video on Twitter or on Facebook. Let other people know that there are things going on that they need to prepare for. From my family to yours, please stay safe and keep watch. Good morning, Black family. Sadat here. Good going uh stream Professor Black Truths moment of truth. Family and fellow soldiers, I'm the professor and this is the moment of truth. Weaponizing phony white outrage continues. Ed Blum is a right-wing sock puppet who manufactures lawsuits in order to make changes in the judiciary because the white right can't find a legislature suicidal enough to try it themselves. He's the front man for the white right's lawsuit or rather lawfare campaigns, that's what this is. Whenever there's someone making some phony claim that white people are being disadvantaged by something, Ed Blum will be the person running to get in front of the cameras. But then again, it's not exactly as if somebody needs to make some sort of claim. Ed Blum has actually been instrumental in manufacturing these kind of lawsuits. When they claimed that they wanted to attack schools for daring to admit black students, Blum was the front man for the cynically named Students for Fair Admission. Of course, he has nothing to say whatsoever about legacy admissions, which are almost entirely white. Apparently, he doesn't feel that there's anything unfair about that. Since the Supreme Court, which is infested with Federalist Society shills, rubber-stamped Blum's lawsuit, that sock puppet organization is basically obsolete. 
But that's okay because Blum and his pals have made up a new one, calling itself the American Alliance for Equal Rights. It sounds generic because it is. And what a surprise, when you go to their website, you see that Ed Blum is the president of this so-called organization. Truth be told, this isn't really a website, it's actually a web page. There are no other pages to it. This is it. But predictably, they're totally unconcerned about the rampant racial preferences for white people. Apparently, they don't consider that to be a problem. Their purpose is to attack any companies who give funding to black businesses, specifically to black female-owned businesses. This is part of the white rights' overall strategy of racially targeting black people, a race war that Blum's been the front man for for many years. What the white right is doing is trying to conduct some lawfare. Basically, they're trying to weaponize lawsuits either to intimidate people through the threat of bankrupting them through court processes or to try to change some laws through some corrupt judges. Blum is going for the latter. Now, he lost his initial attempt to coerce a black woman-owned venture capital firm from awarding grants exclusively to black woman entrepreneurs. Blum and his racist pals demand that they give money to everybody and that they can't specifically focus on funding black women's businesses. This is their lawfare, and they're not even being subtle about it. Right after the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action in schools, 13 Republican state attorney generals began sending threatening letters to big corporations like Apple, Google, and Netflix, telling them that the court's ruling also applies to employers, and threatening that they'll face serious legal consequences if they dare to hire anybody who the Republicans don't like. So they very quickly put aside any pretense that this was not all about race and that the college admissions lawsuit that they manufactured was nothing more than a feeble front for what was actually going to be a war against black people in the society in general. That's what this is actually about. Now, Ed Blum has been out there filing these nuisance suits for the longest time, and they typically didn't go anywhere in the courts. But the last year or so, he's actually had some success. Why is that? It's because there's a lot of right-wing nuts on the federal court. Mitch McConnell was psychopathically focused on this during the Trump years. It meant everything to him. That's the reason why, although Mitch McConnell can't really stand Donald Trump, nonetheless, Trump was willing to nominate all of the coots, cranks, and clowns who the Federalist Society recommended for those federal judgeships. And as far as Mitch McConnell was concerned, that would be the way to give the GOP an artificial 20-plus additional years to affect laws even after they become a permanent political minority in the legislature. Now, the Federalist Society is who comes up with the list of right-wing nuts who they swear loyalty to their ideology and pledge to wipe their behinds with the Constitution if you put them on a federal bench. Let's go ahead and follow some money. Who is it who was giving Ed Blum money all these years for his so-called Students for Fair Admissions scheme? When you look at the names, you see that it's groups like the Searle Trust and the Sarah Scaife Foundation. And when you look at who it is who gives money to the Federalist Society, you see that it's also the Scaife Foundation. By the way, this is not an exhaustive list. There's plenty of others. There's a lot of overlap, but you get the idea. So, Ed Blum, as well as the Republican politicians who nominate these ideologues to the bench, and the prejudiced judges themselves, all these people are coming from the exact same source. The same wealthy white interest, the exact same wealthy white interest who pay Ed Blum to file these nuisance suits are also the exact same ones who go to Mitch McConnell and say, now here's the list of judges we want you to put on the federal bench so that they can hear these lawsuits that Ed Blum is going to be filing. They're all the exact same people coming from the exact same source. 
It's a closed loop of corruption. This is an astral turf operation being run by the same wealthy white racist who created and propped up other groups like the Manhattan Institute. The goal of these white oligarchs was to use their money to rig the system completely in their favor by making sure their operatives were on the bench, they were the ones filing lawsuits, and the ones hopefully writing or at least influencing laws. This is why, after all these years, Ed Blum's meritless lawsuits are finally gaining some traction. This has been a long-term project by the white right. Ed Blum has already said that he's going to appeal the lower court's rulings, and we know why. The entire plan from the very beginning is to put all of this stuff in front of the Federalist Society's flunkies on the Supreme Court. They don't care about losing cases at the state or appeals level because they already got the Supreme Court in their pocket. Now, there is something else that needs to be mentioned here. Given everything that I've just talked about, this might seem a little bit contradictory, but it's not. Earlier this year, I told you about the so-called minimum basic income schemes that were being tried in a few states. For those of you who didn't watch the video essay, the idea is to give lower-income women extra money that they can use for whatever they want, ostensibly for businesses, but the thing is they can use it wherever they choose to. The white media focused their stories about that on the funds being given to black women, but in actuality, minimum basic income plans are for everyone. California's proposed minimum basic income plan is going to be for everybody. Now, when I posted my video essay about that, I also gave a couple of warnings, too. The first warning was that we should make sure to guard against anyone trying to claim that a minimum basic income check is some form of reparations. It's not. Even if slavery had never happened, we as black people in this country would still be entitled to the government using the resources it has to enrich and empower us because that's just a basic part of being a citizen. The government is supposed to be doing things to put resources into the pockets of the citizens because that's government's job, at least a moral government, but of course we don't have a moral government. We live under a system of white supremacy. My point is, don't let anyone conflate reparations with whatever social programs exist. They're both two separate and distinct things. Secondly, I also warn that when you see the government singling out any segment of the black population, in this case black women for benefits, they're not doing that to help the black community as a whole. We've seen this one before. Now, I'm not saying that black female businesses getting VC funding is bad. It's not. The problem is the people behind it are doing it as a continuation of a gender war. We've been targeted by our enemies. They want to divide us. And the tool they intend to use is money. In the 1960s, they used government programs like welfare, food stamps, along with a few white corporate and a few white government jobs as the wedge between black men and women. Black women were given welfare, food stamps, a few middle management jobs, and a job in the post office. And after that, we've seen a steady drumbeat of all these black men are unemployed. How come these black men don't have jobs? White power has the ability to arbitrarily pick who the winners and losers are. That's why. Yesterday, it was government handouts and corporate token jobs. Today, it's venture capitalist money and government minimum basic income funding. Different names for the exact same thing. But the point is that we see corporations and the government singling black women out to get this funding. Does anyone seriously think that's because they like black women all of a sudden? Now, in the interest of full disclosure, the black woman-owned venture capitalist fund that Ed Blum's trying to sue, 
the so-called Fearless Fund, does claim to have a capital grant for black men, though it seems to be for far less than the one that they have for black women. My question is, why are they not making a bigger deal out of that? All the white media coverage about Fearless Fund focuses entirely on them giving money to black women's businesses. If they give to those black men and black women, common sense says that they ought to be talking about both of those things. The people defending them certainly ought to be focusing on that. When Ed Blum went after black students being admitted to colleges and universities, he didn't just focus on the black female students. When I see these white corporations and these banks and such who are contributing to these VC funds, I also have to wonder how many of them are best buds with Ed Blum or better yet, best buds with the wealthy white racist donors who fund that guy. Now, while it's certainly gratifying to see a scumbag like Ed Blum being given a black eye, my point is we shouldn't still be having arguments about whether black men and black women should be on the same page when it comes to group economics. For the people who don't listen so well, I'm not opposed to the idea of a black woman-owned venture capitalist fund deciding that they're going to be giving money exclusively to black women. My question is, why are things like this always held up as black women excelling past black men? trying to stoke that gender war stuff. Why are some black women eager to go along with that narrative that they're competing against black men? That's what it lends itself to. Is the goal to make black men think that they're left with no option other than to begin starting and promoting business ventures that are only meant to benefit black men, only meant with black men in mind? This is starting us down a path of being fractured and separated into separate gender camps. Now, who benefits from black men and black women dividing themselves along lines of gender for a second time, trying to push the idea that one segment of the black community is exceptional over another? That's a recipe for generational dysfunction. It makes mutual contempt run rampant, and it results in that group not being able to work together. When I see big banks putting money into black people's hands, I know that's because they're trying to encourage a particular thing. My question is, what? Black people need money for all kinds of things. And normally we can't beg these banks for one thin dime. Now suddenly those same people are behind this black woman funded, black woman run venture capitalist fund. Reparations is unquestionably a good thing. But would reparations only for black men be a good thing? The same goes for group economics. Any economic venture that intentionally aims to leave fully half the black population out is supposed to make us ask questions at the very least. What I'm saying is, let's make sure that we don't repeat the mistakes of the 60s. Money ought to be something that brings black people together. If any of us tries to use it as something to divide us, or attempts to turn it into something to exalt oneself over other black people, that makes them every bit as bad as Ed Blum and all his racist pals. And you can take that money to the bank. Good day, and be one. I'd like to take a moment to mention some of our contributors. Tazden, Amir Miller, Kenel Bender, Roxanne Allen, and Salim Mohammed. Salute to them and thank you to everyone for listening, liking, and sharing this message. Black empowerment only exists because of you.